you can easily build better user experiences, new user experiences, which are more digitally native. But you can you can certainly still keep using your digital hygiene. If you don't have digital security hygiene today, it's not going to help you in a future fintech application either. Welcome to the CIO Exchange podcast, where we talk about what's working, what's not, and what's next. I'm Eden Porter de Leon. The accelerating growth of fintech companies is a powerful sign of the unstoppable market dynamics that are currently unfolding. Agile cloud-native startups backed by large amounts of venture capital were able to take market share from established companies like legacy consumer banks by creating the trusted platform of choice for the next generation. In this episode, I speak with Anudeep Parhar, CIO of Entrust, a trusted identity technology company specializing in highly secure transactions. In this conversation, we cover a broad range of topics, including the advantages of building mobile-first consumer experiences, the importance of secure transactions in the trust-building process, DeFi, or decentralized finance on the blockchain, international regulatory and other constraints that can affect the ability of smaller fintech companies to scale globally, as well as what larger companies can learn from the success these fintech companies have had. Deep, I know there's a lot of dimensions to this topic. I know fintech companies have come, they've disrupted much larger, more entrenched companies, large logos, household names, in fact. And they've done this by providing better customer experiences, a whole new brand experience. Maybe you can give me your perspective, just kind of at the top here. What do you feel like these new fintech companies are doing right from a trust perspective, from a brand perspective, that's really helped them take the market share that they have? So from our point of view, I think one of the fundamental things that you know some of these fintech organizations, what they're doing is one is I think they're delivering the experience that most people are using on an everyday basis. For example, the mobile experience of being able to, to use financial applications, and et cetera, in a, in a mobile environment is really, really cool. And the way they do it is with the security, especially when you're using you know, your mobile phones and smartphones, it comes inherently with the security that, that the phone provides. So it, it meets the consumer of the financial technology and the financial apparatus where the user is versus the other way around. So I think that's one of the biggest things that, that they have been able to do. They've brought some of this technology and some of these capabilities to the user versus the user having to go to some of these capabilities. And I think the second thing that I think that they're doing very well is, is more of the interactive experience that most users today expect. This is we are in a hyper self-service world and uh, you know, all consumers want to be able to access data and information on their schedule. They want to be able to chat with folks if they have questions rather than going somewhere. So I think they meet the consumer where they are. And finally, you know, because of the security around and some of the other cybersecurity risks that come with, uh, with financial and fintech applications, I think they are leveraging the platforms that are available uh, to a mobile experience today. So, so those are the kind of things that I see that why these guys are so successful. No, there's a couple of things I wanted to pull on too. The one really fascinating me, of course, that mobile element too, and also that security native piece. And I think it's because it's interesting that now is the time that this shift is happening. Now is the time that these fintech companies are able to emerge and create these types of experiences and also create the build the trust they need to, not just from a brand perspective, but a security perspective. And it's just been like these other companies who have been here, who have been established, didn't build themselves on a cloud-first, mobile-first, distributed-first, digital experience foundation so that these new companies now are able to take some of the new tools and just be natively secure and you know and have great experiences. So it's not a choice anymore. It's not you have security or great customer experiences. You can do both now. You can have security and customer experiences. So that or versus and, so the false choices aren't, aren't there anymore. And these organizations, these fintech organizations are seeing that and taking advantage of that. Is that one of, one of the reasons why it's happening now? 
Absolutely. The larger, the legacies of fintech or the finance, financial institutions are largely around a lot of different services. It's not around that one particular transaction or one type of activity that you want to perform. And the second thing is just the proliferation of the experience as well as, you know, the generational effect that's happened. You know, we have a couple of generations, at least in the last, say, two decades, who have grown up with what we would call sort of a native mobile experience. You know, for them, the screen is where they get all their information, where they conduct all their personal and professional business. And from that point of view, if you are able to provide very bespoke vertical service that the that the individual is looking for. You know, you're applying for a credit application. You're just checking your credit rating. You want to be able to fill out a mortgage application. These are very specific applications, which, you know, these fintech organizations are able to provide. And the trust piece is where sort of I fall very heavily is because the platform itself, the experience at large, the, the mobile experience at large provides certain level of security natively in the platform itself. So if you're an iPhone user or Apple user, or if you're, you're, you're an Android user, applications built in those, so to speak, closed ecosystem carry with them certain level of security. And then on top of that, everybody's experience today, all of us are, for example, very much used to saying the multi-factor authentication. You know, you know, this is a, this is, a, you know, the second factor of how you authenticate either via SMS or via biometrics or face ID, et cetera. They're very normal. They are not specific things that you do if you're accessing financial data. You do that when you're accessing Facebook or Instagram. And at the same time, you use the same modes to secure and access your financial information as well. So I think that is the, the convergence of you know, people growing up with this as well as the technology and the platform that inherently provides some of that security and trust. And you couple that with the vertical nature of some of the fintech applications today, I think that's a win-win. Yeah, and I think one of the really fascinates me is that generational piece that you mentioned too. The generation has grown up with this. And the key component in there that I think that you highlight is that is that when they're connecting to all these other things that are normal parts of their life, these fintech companies create a similar experience. Whereas you have a larger sort of like sort of financial services, customer-facing consumer financial services organization, they've ported their in-person banking experience to this digital world instead of actually creating a digitally native experience for the end user and bringing all the sort of services, all the different pieces, all the complexity that they had previously, rather than looking at saying, well, what's the simplicity? What, what's the end user experience really look like? And how, what are the experiences in the way that people you know, access their personal information or personal social, you know, social networking tools? And they share that you know, very, sort of very sensitive information you know, on those channels. How are they connecting there? And how can we sort of make that ease and let, let the, that friction, the frictionless you know capability experience within a financial services application and create this create this just this feeling like you are like you said you're connecting to Facebook or Instagram or and then you're using it you know in that same way and there's that same ease and there's that that same end user experience so that generational thing is is really really key because it's a like you were alluding to it's it's a completely different uh, mode like the the problem they were trying to solve was for you know existing customer base and then migrating them over into a digital world rather than creating a digitally native you know generation to adopt this piece too and then do you think from a brand perspective it it seems like that just the logos and the brand presence of these fintech companies are commanding this trust 
Whereas, you know, when someone looks at some of the older logos, you know, for financial services institutions, they don't necessarily see that themselves and their generation is identifying with that. And then what do you think, what do you think the sort of the larger enterprise companies can do now, can learn from these fintech companies when they're looking at sort of creating those experiences and pulling some of that generation into to, to their platforms? First of all, you're absolutely right, right? There's the generation itself, because the user experience, the expectation has changed. I think that sort of drives some of the innovation that's coming down and then the platforms, et cetera. And the second piece in my mind is, you know, this is where sort of after, you know, looking at it for, say, a couple of decades, the interesting thing is the legacy financial institutions, you know, if you're focused, for example, on bank branch modernization, meaning what is the future bank branch? If you see mm-hmm. some of the larger banks or credit card companies, folks are investing a lot of money in mm-hmm. modernizing their branches. That has its place. The way I see it is that the pie is bigger now. Because there is so much self-service, there is so much, so many more eyes on either screens or ability to go into branches to do interesting new things, it expands. The legacy guys also get to expand their services. They can do more and more things because they are making the branch more attractive and more, uh, so to speak, sort of digitally available to their customers. And at the same time, some of the fintechs can provide these solutions when you just need ease. And I, and there are certain use cases, personally for me, that I would love to go into a branch. I haven't been into a bank branch in a very long time. But, yeah, it's been, it's been tough lately, hasn't it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but there are certain things that, are, you know, generationally or otherwise, I would still like to do it in person. Why? Because of either the value of the transaction or other trust issues, but I want to be able to sort of say either I need to digitally do it in a trusted fashion or I don't, you know, I'd, I'd like to do it face-to-face. There are folks there who want to do it one way or the other. But the way I see it is that the market has expanded because mm-hmm. there is, and I believe fundamentally that is because we are, because of, uh, you know, and, you know, either way you fall on, on the spectrum, we are always on. Mm-hmm. You know, COVID hasn't made it easy. We are actually even on even more than we were before. Yeah, we see, it's hard to imagine that that was even possible, but it has proven mm-hmm. to be you know, a more of a connecting experience. Absolutely. So I, I was sitting recently, you know, you know, I finally got to take a take a flight and I'm flying and the gentleman sitting next to me and his daughter, it was amazing. If you just sort of notice how many different applications on their phones, people jump from one to the other. We have become extremely adept as humans and as a society to be able to jump from one experience, which is more traditionally, say, social media or entertainment, directly mm-hmm. into a business conversation. We have yeah. become highly adept individuals. And I think these are some of the fundamental things that are driving the expansion of the market. You know, and so where I fall on this is, I don't think the legacy financial institutions have a lot of room to grow and provide new services with their existing infrastructure. They are opening up so the, the core financial institutions or the financial infrastructure to these fintechs, which can provide a different user experience and different new capabilities to the consumers. And I think the consumer gets a choice. If you want a self-service transactional experience very quick, you have that ability on the phone. Or if you want an in-person, more detailed experience, you can go to the branch. So I think the market's gotten bigger. Yeah, no, and I think some of the some some of the institutions are adapting to it well. Where you look at your phone, you look at the app, and the app experiences, and like we have everything under the sun, and you, there's like a billion different buttons, and like you get lost really easy, and the text is small, and, the, and it's not a smooth interface. Some of them have created super simple, like incredibly, like do two or three things. It's crazy easy and out. But do you feel like some some institutions that haven't been able to to do that or adapt to that? Do you feel like they need to to like to acquire a fintech company and spin them out to do something like you know to get a mortgage really quickly or find a car? 
Carlone or do some specialty components? Do you feel like it really needs to be a different brand, a different app? Or do you feel like these legacy companies can really actually take that brand and really reach out in a trusted way to this new generation and provide those really rich experiences that fintech companies can come? Can they disrupt themselves, Andrew Deep? I guess that's what I'm talking about. I think the, the traditional wisdom, at least in technology, will tell us that that's very hard to do. The yeah. easier path to do, and this is, you know, I've seen it, you know, if you go back to the 90s when the internet came up and then now in the, in the, in the 2000s with the emergence of the cloud, it's very difficult to do things in city. You can do it. It's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> but if, if you either, there are multiple ways to do it. You can, you know, you can have innovation models that have succeeded or, you know, your in-house separate innovation organizations, which can help you do some of that work. You know, you can sort of build a company within a company or you yeah. can acquire it and then you can spend a mile or you can uh, you know, have a vested interest. You can buy into companies or, or invest into other companies which are doing some of this work. So there are various business models to get there. But from my point of view, the underlying theme with all of this is large companies are still going to be responsible. The large fintechs are still going to be the arbiters of trust. There is a lot of conversation around decentralization of the trust, but still Mm -hmm. these organizations will need to provide the fundamental fabric of trust because irrespective of the either the fintechs and or another way of you know spinning up new capabilities, you know, we still need it all comes back to trust. Do you trust Mm -hmm. how the applications are working? And if you trust, you know, your personal information with that. There are several use cases just in the last year, you know, with the emergence of all the crypto stuff, yeah. there are very large organizations which have had trouble scaling. They've gotten the business. Mm-hmm. They have gotten huge amounts of scale because what they built is really attractive to the populace at large, but they've, they've, they've had trouble scaling. And usually the scaling trouble happens is with securing the application. The hackers are ahead of you and you're mm-hmm. always catching up. And that's where I think the larger organization have the experience and the wherewithal, not just I wouldn't say intelligence because intelligence exists in both smaller companies and big companies. It's just that some people have the ability to to invest and build some of that infrastructure first. And the yeah. others are, you know, which build the application first. No, no, that makes yeah. sense. I, I'm really glad that you mentioned that too, because the decentralized versus centralized, there's cent- these central banks who are like the central arbiters of trust. They're the clearinghouses. They're the single points of trust where, you know, you transact through them uh, and not directly with somebody else. But then you have some of the concerns that you just outlined too, where like if you have for example, there's some applications where if you want to make a blockchain transaction, you want to buy a little bit of Bitcoin, that may take a few days to clear before it actually hits your account. And that seriously erodes trust. Uh, and this isn't the example across the board, but there are situations in which you have an application and you want to make a blockchain transaction. All of a sudden, you're, you know, normally it might take 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but then sometimes it could take hours. And that's that's a serious concern and that's a scale concern. So I think one of the things that from sort of from an infrastructure perspective, like you had just mentioned, Enerdeep, which I think is probably one of the most sort of fascinating sort of rubber meets the road, you know, conversation components is do these, you know, older institutions have, you know, the ability to take some legacy infrastructure and really adapt to be nimble? And is there are also there are security concerns with some of the newer fintech companies, and maybe that's actually even more of, uh, of an interesting topic. Where these new fintech companies are moving quickly, what are some of the risks, the security risks, and the trust risk of moving that fast, and leveraging some of these new technologies, uh, and then being the first ones to to see whether or not you know you can pull in uh, enough people and keep them, like you said. You know how how do, how do they scale? How do they keep these people? Maybe while they're innovating so quickly and staying ahead of the curve. That's a really fascinating set of point of view, right? Especially some of the some of the DeFi stuff. You know, the decentralized 
the concept, and this is my personal yeah. opinion, I yeah. think the concept is extremely solid. I think yeah. that and the I think core you said DeFi, you mean decentralized finance on blockchain, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, the concept and being a technologist, I get fascinated by this stuff. This is not a new concept. It's been around for a while. It's just, mm-hmm. it's really coming into, into a sort of operationalization and consumerization of some of this stuff in, in say, the past decade or so, right? Mm-hmm. So what we, you know, in my mind, what we're seeing is now that we are pressure testing sort of the decentralized trust model, you know, people are like, okay, I get it. This is, this mm-hmm. is I understand why decentralized model would work. When you start translating that from, say, you know, your traditional algorithm development into application development where people mm-hmm. can consume it and make businesses around it, mm-hmm. what we are seeing is that there's a lot of kinks that need to be ironed out. And I yeah. think this is where, going back to your question around how large fintechs or large uh, financial institutions innovate, is you cannot have a wait and see for these large. They either need to invest or they need to 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 change the model to say this is how reality works. And what I mean by that is, for example, a fundamental concept of blockchain, for example, is that once a transaction is written, it cannot be backed out. Mm-hmm. And that itself can be turned on its head, and it's recently happened, where if you are hacked and a transaction is erroneous and has been performed, i.e. money or Bitcoin has been taken out of your account, it cannot be reversed. Yeah. Which <laughs> very is very counter to sort of the whole concept of it being secure. I know. It's uneasy. And, when you have when you're used to doing yeah. instantaneous transactions that have FDIC right. insurance to them, it's a little bit of a shift to be able to move right. to something like that. <laughs> yeah. So what you're seeing is in my mind is like, you know, I think there is still a little bit of uh, and I, I you know, I know this is not the specific topic that we want to get into, but but there is still a little bit more settling that needs to happen in sort of what what is going to emerge as the winning strategy for decentralized trust to take hold. I personally think decentralized trust is here to stay. It is going to fundamentally change it, but we need to sort of figure out how uh, how the traditional organizations are going to benefit from, from decentralized trust. And, yeah. uh, it's just a fantastic time. No, it is. It is. I like that the point you bring out. I think it's worth underlining the fact that you cannot wait. You have to invest. I think that's one key piece that sort of the listeners you take away from is that you can't just wait and see, see what works, see what settles out, because there is a key core capability that larger enterprises have. And they have that, like you said, they have the cash, they have the fortitude, and they have the experience of scale, the massive scale that some of these critically globally, you know, uh, you know, uh, trusted, you know, institutions have to scale at that level and understanding what it takes, I think is, is a profound asset that the fintech companies don't necessarily have. And I think taking advantage of that is something that they need to do when you talk about investing now. But one thing I think that you touched on that I really want to sort of dive into is that, is that what are some of those concerns? And from your perspective, when it comes to identity and trust, you talked about getting hacked, let's say in a blockchain transaction, you know, there's, you know, front runner bots and lots of other things out there that can, you know, potentially undermine the fundamental you know, foundation of trust in certain technologies. What are the things that scare you when it comes to you know, identity and trust and some of the things that the, some of the boundaries that the fintechs uh, are kind of pushing? Because I'm wondering from an enterprise perspective, what, is, what should I be concerned about as a CIO and when I want to talk about innovation and I want to talk about pushing the boundaries? Certainly. So here's how I, uh, I simply think about this stuff. There, is, there, there are two modes of innovation. One is your, let's call it your digital cloud or, or, or digital hygiene. You know, your, your basics of security as well as foundational you know, secure infrastructure. The other one is innovative applications, you know, where you have mobile applications or fintech applications. I think the way I see CIOs need to think about is you still got to keep the foundational trust. It still applies to some of these new fintech as well as new mobile applications as well. If you try to innovate or move both of them at the same time, 
you will probably not come out as ahead as you would like. So what I mean by that is, I think there is a lot of legs and we should double down on building new experiences using some of these new fintech and disruptive methodologies. For example, using APIs to be able to provide very vertical specific applications, which are just in time. But mm-hmm. use the foundational security hygiene that empowers big organizations. That is a fundamental gap with, with smaller organizations. And there are several examples, you know, even in the past 12 to 14 months, where very good ideas have been turning south or bad brand names or very poor customer experience mm-hmm. if it didn't have basic security hygiene. So I think people need to pay attention, in my opinion, to your fundamental security and digital uh, hygiene and then innovate on the on the consumer experience and application end of it. No, I think that's good perspective. And from a sort of an executive you know, technology leadership perspective, or even a business you know, outcome perspective, you might say that, well, okay, we want to make sure that we're leading with security, um, but there's concern that, okay, well, are we going to be able to move as fast? There's a feeling that maybe we're not going to be able to move as fast as some of these fintech companies uh, can when we have this type of security concern. But like you said, what fascinates me is that, that it's not a it's it's not a question of if it's you have to make it happen, uh, and and how do you overcome sort of that sentiment that you might lose agility, you might lose speed, you might lose you know market leadership if you take this approach, and and how do you sort of overcome those barriers? And I think most of this you know the the thrust of this is how do you dispel that perception that that is the case? How do you talk to people that you know about how you can have the secure, trusted, you know, a foundation, but also have a delightful end user experience, and you can move quickly. And how do you how do you communicate? How do you do that? How do you inspire others to make that leap? So the way I see this is this is not. It used to be that back in the day that you know these were sort of opposing and mutually exclusive you know qualities. You know, which is either you can get security or you can get user experience. You know, to our previous point, especially some of the newer disruption, the the screens that we use today, they have proven that you can do both at the same time. Mm. The point I'm trying to make is you do not need to reinvent security completely in order to power a fintech disruptive experience. It has to be done in tandem. You can easily build better user experiences, new user experiences, which are more digitally native. But you can you can certainly still keep using your digital hygiene. If you don't have digital security hygiene today, it's not going to help you in a future fintech application either. So, so the first thing is you gotta have the basics of trust and security built within the organization. You know, otherwise, irrespective of uh, it's if it's a disruptive application or not, it's gonna it's at some point it's gonna fail. Yeah, you can be disruptive if you want, but if you fall down and no one trusts you, then you know, then that you're not really disrupting anything. <laughs> absolutely, and you you see like a lot of examples, and I don't want to use particular names, but it's it's exactly what's happening today, right? You know, mm-hmm. people are you, the companies who have who are in my they're so fortunate that they actually have users and consumers, the growth rates that are in like double and sometimes triple digits, but. The consumer experience, the actual support experience suffers. Why? Because they don't have the basic hygiene of of making sure that the simplest transaction is secure. And that's because, you know, it hasn't been sort of built from the beginning. And, you know, it's hard to come back and retrofit some of the basic security stuff. Simple things like, you know, to be able to validate your accounts using, you know, biometrics or multi-factor authentication. If that's not built in, you got to rewrite the whole thing. And uh, usually these companies don't have the means to be able to do that quickly. And I think that's where the larger organizations, to your previous point, the legacy organizations can sort of help when they provide some of these, for example, APIs for the broader uh, you know, uh, fintech world. And don't just provide access to the core underlying infrastructure, but also 
availability and security are extremely, extremely important. If those couple together, if you provide access to core FI, financial institution infrastructure, in a secure manner, which is readily available, even if the uh, corporations have to pay a price for it, you know, that's the winning strategy, so to speak. No, I think I think that's good perspective. And two, there's also that one, there's another layer of complexity, of course, and we haven't even really dug into global regulatory environments when it comes to, you know, uh, brick and mortar or brick and click versus mobile native, cloud native, fintech first. Uh, and you feel like it, it might even in some circumstances, some of the experience that some of these established enterprise companies have, have given them a huge advantage from a regulatory perspective. They've got huge teams that from IT and also from legal and from leadership that have been able to help them negotiate a lot of this sort of the global scale component too. Do you feel like some are actually an advantage over some of the faster moving fintech companies that still have to adapt from a regulatory standpoint? How does that add a layer of complexity when you're talking about trust, you're talking about end user experience, you're talking about security? That's a really fantastic question, Adi. So for example, especially in Europe, you know, usually from a compliance and regulatory obligations point of view and the rigor, you know, EMEA and the Europe specifically is usually ahead of the rest yeah. of the world. They've done a really good job building some of these regulatory frameworks. Interesting thing is that the entire concept of open banking sort of emerged in the EU. And they have been able to build these structures where, to my previous point, fintechs don't just have access to the raw infrastructure, meaning they don't have access to just saying, I can build into your bank's APIs and do some interesting things in terms of payments or mortgage applications or approvals, et cetera. But they're also maturing into saying that has to be provided with the right amount of trust and the security infrastructure around it. So they are they are taking it upon themselves to build consortiums of various, for example, in the UK with various banks to provide not only an open infrastructure for fintechs to innovate on, but also mm. an open and secure infrastructure. It hasn't yeah. been easy, but they've been able to do it. And I think the rest of the world needs to need to sort of learn from that and build something like that. No, I think that's interesting. The fascinating piece about that is because you're talking about trust on two different levels. One, that's consumer trust, the one who's consuming that that experience. But then what you're talking about right now, too, is also interagency, interbanking, you know, intergovernmental trust, where if you are a small organization, it's going to be much harder for you to get over the hurdle of, should I let this new and exciting and, you know, and yes, wonderful, you know, new piece of technology, is this going to be a good experience for, you know, for our city, for our state, for our nation, for our region? And is it, they're going to be able to actually do the heavy lift of compliance. There's a component of trust actually from a regulatory and global, you know, uh, you know, security uh, perspective that are you going to be able to, as a smaller, faster, agile company, going to be able to break into that scale, that global market scale as you are versus, you know, a more established company who has those relationships in place. Absolutely. You know, we are seeing this right now in, in EU. The entire idea of, for example, trust and qualified trust, right? Mm -hmm. The qualified trust. Yeah, explain, explain that. That sounds interesting. Explain that. Yeah. So, so what's happening is, you know, you, for example, if you look at even simple things like digital signatures, you, know, you can have a digital signature which says, you know, you send me a document, assign it, send it back. Good. That's just a simple signature, right? That's mm -hmm. an electronic signature, which is essentially around the efficiency of paperless office. The next thing is, how do I? How do you know it's me who signed it? Well, you can use tools that are available today to be able to say, well, you're gonna have to, you know, you're gonna have to have some security apparatus behind it. Let's call it advanced signatures to be able to say that in fact I am who I am. Right? This is Anadeep Parhar signing the document. Yeah. Now the third level, which is a qualified trust, specifically, it comes in large like government transactions or where you are you know providing social services to your your constituents in a government uh, environment or you're doing large you know financial transactions that's the qualified trust which means is 
what is the level of validation going into saying, in fact, who you are, you are who you are. Meaning if I can sign the application, how do I prove it as me who who is signing it? Do I mm-hmm. have a validation around a qualification with it saying this is my passport and it says this or is it a biometric? And so, mm-hmm. so I think, you know, I think as the use cases expand from purely commercial and get into sort of the social fabric where, where we are dealing with providing social services or providing these other uh, citizen government to citizen type like services, the where validation of identity is extremely important. And I think that's where sort of the qualified stuff comes in. And that's an emerging thing that's happening in the European Union right now, which I think is going to expand globally as well. But these guys are innovating at a much faster rate. So if you see the, you know, what's called a QTSP, which is a qualified trust service provider, mm-hmm. the emergence of those qualified trust providers is very critical for this entire set of apparatus to grow and take hold. So yeah, I think you've got that. There's two levels there where you've got that, you know, the, the technology innovation, but you also have regulatory innovation. And then there's right. the execution of that. And that's, you know, process innovation, which which are components that are that are key and also sort of more leaning towards, you know, larger established organizations. And I think that's a good place to end that part of the conversation and, and sort of transition to what we call um, take it to the board. Um, and so you're, you know, you're a CIO, you're in a company too, and other, you know, technology leaders, you know, who are, you know, are in similar situations have to have executive, you know, e-staff conversations, board level conversations. One thing that we like to do here is to make sure that we sort of distill this down to what's that thing that you would take to the board? What can larger companies, maybe companies who might've been held back previously or companies who are looking to take the next step or or have some momentum and want to accelerate that momentum? What do you feel like that next board level conversation should be whether it's from a CIO or from the you know any, the the chief technology leader or line of business leader should be so you know maybe you could help take uh, take this conversation to the board. What's that? What's sort of the top you know one two or three things that that really should be taken to the board and be front of mind and should constantly be discussed each time they have check ins and get status reports. So the, a couple of ways of looking at it. First of all, I'll, I'll take a little bit different view. It's like what not to say. Right? <laughs> that's it, always it, it, that's great yeah. advice. So well, what not right. to say. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, traditionally, you know, say over the last even you know, couple of decades, one way to get sort of the, you know, and I'm doing air quotes, I know we are we are not being a, uh, on video, but mm-hmm. like to get approval of security projects, it's been as the fear mongering. You know, it's yeah. kind of like saying, well, if you don't do this, remember what happened to XYZ company? That doesn't work anymore. You know, you cannot sort of you know, put fear in the board to say, if you don't do this, hence that. I think you have to come from a point of view, kind of like what we are talking about, which is there is intrinsic business value in securing and doing some of the things we are talking about. You know, to building some of this hygiene within the company, just like we want. Nobody questions today that when you build something, you should quality test it mm-hmm. because that's everybody understands that. And, you know, that's what, so I think that you have to bring common sense into the conversation and you have to use industry metrics to talk about this stuff. Second thing largely is there is actually value creation associated with providing a highly secure as well as basic trusted solutions to your, to your customers. This is not just a cost anymore. It it's creates direct value. And that's a harder conversation in some organizations than the other. But with the digital transformation happening literally in every corner and in every industry, this is a value creation apparatus. And, and I would encourage CIOs or technology leaders to take that view to the boards rather than saying this is yet another cost we'd like you to incur, but say, no, this is how it makes our brand better. This is how it make, helps our customers. The idea of 
customer success? How do your customers succeed if you don't have some of these things? So I think that's sort of the advice that I would give, and it's been highly successful for me personally in order to convince our board as well as some of my peers. No, I think that's a much more powerful way to approach it. Well, Enerdeep, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, before we uh, go, though, I want to make sure that if you uh, you want to tell everyone anywhere else you can find you, whether it's on social media or any other platform, where where can they find you out there in the in the metaverse? Uh, you know, pretty much everywhere. Other than uh, <laughs> you know, you know, if you send me a letter, I probably won't respond. But you know, <laughs> hey, uh, you know, I'm on the usual places. LinkedIn, you know, is usually my professional network. You know, but if if you're interested in socially what I do, I'm, I'm on the usual Facebooks and Instagrams. So I usually keep my Twitter, which is my you, my handle is on that under the par, and my LinkedIn profile, which is fairly obvious and available for all my commercial musings uh, and Facebook, Instagram, and and some of the other social platforms for if if you're interested in world music and all different kinds of things that I like to do in spare time. Excellent, excellent. We'll put those in the show notes as well. So, um, what's uh, what's that one topic that they might find on you know, like in, in addition to world music, if they're looking on Twitter or somewhere else that's you know that's outside that realm of strictly professional? Uh, <laughs> a lot to do. You know, I'm a big and uh, not for the lack of trying. I'm not very good at making music, but I'm very good at listening to music. And excellent, all, excellent, all kinds, <laughs> all kinds. You know, so. Believe me, not for trying, you know, you know, so any type of music, world music is my choice. I'm, you know, big into, into sort of traditional, uh, you know, jazz and some of the, some of the older American music that's very exciting to me and, uh, you know, things like that. And hey, if anybody watches uh, uh, some old movies, I'm, I'm for that as well. And finally, if you're into baking goods. Oh, uh, uh, you got my attention now. <laughs> I, I love doing that. I got, I got, I got, you know, 30 pounds to prove it that, that uh, we've been doing that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Anadeep, um, thank you so much for joining the CIO Exchange podcast. Absolutely. Thank you very much. This was a pleasure and uh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this latest episode. Please consider subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more insights from technology leaders, as well as global research on key topics, visit vmware.com slash CIO.